From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we'll share some of our favorite duets from pop music history. Two talented musicians working together to create something better than either on their own. Some velvet morning went up straight. Flowers Plus, we'll interview the duo from the Broken Record podcast, author Malcolm Gladwell and journalist Bruce Headlam. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim Durigatis. And this week, we're talking about some of our favorite duets. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. But first, my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Headlam. A few years ago, Malcolm Gladwell, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of best-selling books like The Tipping Point and Outliers, made waves in the publishing world by choosing to make a podcast instead of authoring his next book. And after three seasons of that show called Revisionist History, uh, Gladwell has now teamed up with a friend and former New York Times editor, Bruce Headlam, for a new show focused on music called Broken Record. Why, my friend, would Wiley E. Coyote, super genius, literary hero to our generation, want to do a music podcast? You know, Greg Cotton and I do it, but that's only because we can't do anything else. (laughs) First of all, so not true. I'm sure you could do whatever you want. Uh, Why not? I, I love music. I was doing revisionist history, and every season I would do a music show, and they were always my favorite shows. Sure. And so I, then I was chatting with Bruce and then with Rick, and uh, we all decided that why not just do one devoted entirely to music? And Rick is Rick Rubin, no slouch. Rick is Rick Rubin, the third, the third amigo, yes, who's a, a crucial part of this operation. Bruce, tell me, uh, you and Malcolm were friends from Canada, right? I mean, going way back? Uh, way back. We have known each other since we were six years old. And wow. I'm not going to give you the year or even the decade. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But it's a long time <laughs> ago. Uh, yeah, we met each other when we were six years old, and we have been friends ever since. I've been visiting two musical super geeks, like Cot and I were, you know, sitting in the basement, listening to, you know, Choose Your Favorite, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or Black Sabbath or whatever, uh, and, and coming up and bonding through music. I do remember listening to... Um, Bridge Over Troubled Water in Malcolm's Basement, and I remember it was a record he had borrowed from the library. But actually, our music, musical taste diverged, I would say, early, early they, and often. They diverged, I think, around the age of seven. Bruce... Bru- <laughs> Bruce's brothers were really into uh, into Yes, and ah. I would be dragged to Bruce's house, and he would play Yes albums for me, and I w- used to always think, this is the worst music I've ever heard. I mm-hmm. cannot believe it. And then, not just Yes, but then the solo albums by each of the members of Yes. Yeah, so, I think oh. he had a particular, a particularly bad reaction to uh, Oleus of Sun Hilo by John Anderson. No, no, it was Patrick Morant's Fish Out of Water. No, no. <laughs> Chris no, no, Squire no, 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 no. did Fish Out of oh, Water. Chris Squire. Patrick Brands. Yeah, it was <laughs> Patrick Brands just did an album called I, or I think that's what the title was. It was very stylized uh, handwriting. 
you know, Chris Squire was the bass player, Malcolm. So fish out of water, the bass, right? You know, bass, whatever. Yes, yes, yes. Witty, witty. You know, can I just say, and you guys will appreciate this and nobody else will, I drew the line at Ramshackled by Alan White. Yeah, yeah. But he played, he did play on Imagine by John Lennon. I, 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 nothing against Alan White. I can't believe, by the way, that I got lured into this thinking we were going to have a broad ranging discussion of music and what we're talking about is yes. (laughs) From the 90s. 90s. This is like bait and switch. You got me on, no, and now we're, now we're talking about... Okay, but wh- <laughs> while we're here, I want to actually ask Malcolm a question that I don't know the answer to, and I know a lot about Malcolm, which is, I don't know when you started liking country music. It was long before I liked it. Is it when you moved to the States? No, 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 no. I listened... Uh, I started listening to it uh, in high school, or middle school, rather, because my brother and I tuned into the local... Was it CKGL? No, what was it? The local, CKCO. CKCO, yeah. the local country music station. And I just love, I, I, it was, I had been searching because, because I'm really only drawn, I'm not a musician and I'm not really, I know less about music than almost anyone else. What I like is the storytelling and the, I like the words, not, I don't know anything, about anything else. And mm-hmm. finally I found music that was about the words, you know, and mm-hmm. about stories. I just thought that was, it was sort of, that was when I felt, I finally sort of felt at home. Hmm. Well, I, I recall uh, distinctly two episodes of revisionist history about country. Um, one uh, was based on your thesis that country is sadder than rock overall. Do you hold yeah. by that, Malcolm? <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, I do. I mean, I wanted to. The the you're you're asking me those questions and theories are always posed in the general spirit of getting us to. Um, have some fun, right? Sure, sure, the sure. The great thing about talking about music is there are an endless number of rabbit holes. And what you really want to do when you listen to a podcast about music, I think, is go down lots of rabbit holes. The more, the better. Um, mm-hmm. And there just aren't as many opportunities for uh, digression, I think, in other, in other subject areas. I think music is like kind of the number one. It's even better than sports, I think, in terms of its opportunities for rabbit holes. Yeah, well, that's why we started with Chris Squire's solo record. <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're holding back because we've we've got a whole series on Chris Squire's solo work uh, coming out. <laughs> that's right. Oh, well, also we're intimidated because we're we're speaking to critics and people who really know their music, and you know we're we're amateurs. So no, oh, but that's that's nonsense. See, everyone is an expert. Everyone is a critic, right? I mean, all it takes is the passion and the desire to, uh, or, or or the follow-through, you know, here is the context, the evidence, the insight uh, that I base my opinion that Chris Squire's solo album sucks on. Well, no, so here's my, my reading of that. It's slightly different, which is that the critic is someone who can tell you what they like and what they don't like and give you reasons. Yeah, well, we're saying the same thing. But the, no, no, the enthusiast, which is what I am, can only tell you what they like and give you a persuasive reason. So I can't, I don't have any faith whatsoever in my dislikes. I don't know enough to be able to tell you why I dislike or even trust in my judgment about something I dislike. All Hmm. I can do is, in Broken Record, we don't do, or I don't do, the ones I do are never about artists that I 
have a problem with because I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't sort of know enough well, to feel comfortable. Well, are you buying that, Bruce? I mean, you were an editor for a long time at the New York Times. You edited one of my heroes, mm-hmm. in fact, media critic David Carr, um, yes. uh, who certainly never had a problem telling anybody what he disliked about anything. Uh, in addition to what he liked, are you buying that Malcolm? I think. See, I think he's. I think Malcolm is just uh, passing the buck on this. I don't believe that he can't do negative criticism uh, of I, music. I, you know, we're, we de- we decided very deliberately not to approach it as critics because honestly, neither of us feel we do have the critical chops. And look, I worked with terrific critics across the board, including David Carr, whom I edited for years. Uh, at the New York Times and, and you know, Tony Scott and, you know, Tony Tomasini and, and John Perales. And I don't have what they have. I think what I have, uh, and Malcolm has probably more than anybody I've ever met in my life, is a sense of story. And almost everything we're approaching, every subject we're approaching, every interview we're approaching is kind of looking for a story. I mean, several people have said to me, you know, well, why was the first interview Nile Rodgers? Oh, and by the way, when I started playing it, I only imitated his just for a few bars. I started going. It was simply because by chance I came across his autobiography, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I think I said something in the podcast. It's like a combination of James Baldwin and, and Charles Dickens. But that was the story with him. And, you know, there's a story with upcoming we've got Roseanne Cash and we just did Rufus Wainwright. And in every case, there is, there's a mystery I want solved about what music means to them and how they communicate that to their audience. And it's, it is that story we're looking for. And I think Malcolm and I don't talk in those terms, but I think that's what we're always looking for. Well, kind of. I mean, you guys have the mission statement on the web for Broken Record. Uh, it's a show that tries to restart the conversation for a world without liner notes. Mm-hmm. Because everything's streaming, right? We can't sit there in front of the lava lamp and, and read the double truck gatefold sleeve liner notes anymore. Yes. Now, I would say that's a blessing in some respects uh, if you have to sit there and actually read the story to The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It makes no sense. It, yeah, you're lost to it begin doesn't with. Make yeah. any sense. But, you know, if you go to uh, Velvet Underground Live, 1969... The liner notes are phenomenal, and and when I encountered them at 13, uh, it blew my my young mind, and it said that someday people will teach Lou Reed in literature classes the way we look at other great rock and rollers like Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare. You know, and this is an idea Tony Scott, who you edited at the New York Times, he's been a guest on Sound Opinions, talks about in Better Living Through Criticism, right? This way mm-hmm. that a critic, and I, you know, I'm not buying, you guys are critics. The way that a critic can illuminate and make connections and inspire you to dig deeper. Not that, you know, they're not trying to get you to love the music they love or hate the music they dislike. Uh, it's just a conversation between people who care passionately about the art. I, I guess that's true. Um, I do want people to have a different way into experience 
the music because I do think it's even with streaming and the variety of ways uh, music comes to you, it doesn't come with a story anymore. Um, but it's to try and put some of that context back for people. Rick and I did an interview uh, for Broken Record with um, Ezra Koenig of uh, Vampire Weekend. Mm -hmm. And it was super interesting to me because we start talking. The conversation is sort of interesting, but not really going anywhere for the first 10 minutes. And then he picks up his, his guitar right by his chair. And Rick asks him some question. And he says, oh, and he starts to answer. And then he realizes that he can answer the question better if he plays the thing he's talking about. And he puts the, picks up the guitar, puts it in his lap. And then the, uh, the interview just takes off. We don't want to have the entire song be five one four bum bum bum. Oh, can you give bum, him bum. the guitar he can, so he can explain okay. it? Oh yeah yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just you, you have better access. Yeah yeah totally. So the part that I originally wrote on piano, you know the chords are. Because you realize suddenly it is the combination of his, he needs to play and talk simultaneously in order to be, to really communicate with us. And sure. It's you get that kind of there's a kind of richness to the conversation that occurs out of it. It's just, it's actually it's really I just sort of sat there and the two of them just start talking, Rick and Ezra Kenny, and Ezra would, you know, play for fifteen seconds and then talk for a minute, then play for not, play the thing he's talking about. And that I just found that combination of playing and talking, which is something we try to do a lot of on Broken Record, almost to be the natural the natural way to hear music. So the liner note was a version of that. It said, while you are listening to this album, you can read something that will enrich your experience of listening. But mm -hmm. we don't have that anymore. So what do we have? Well, one thing we can do is we can actually get the artist to break up their singing and playing with explanation in a way that's sort of natural and unforced. Um, and that's that's, to me, that's the kind of, um, holy grail of this venture. So with the entire universe of music now uh, pretty much available to us at, at a keystroke, uh, anything we can, there's no record we could name that is so obscure that you can't have it instantly on your iPhone, right? Um, what's the role that you guys both think of the critic then in this new universe? I think there is a kind of midwife role, um, which I think critics you know, have always had, um, you know, Tony Scott being a good example of someone you just, you trust to think this is interesting. You may not necessarily agree with them, but you'll take it seriously uh, and that you'll maybe rethink how you listen to music. Uh, we uh, just, I just did an episode with um, Roseanne Cash and her husband. I think I want people to hear what Roseanne Cash is doing because I think what she's doing is great. I want her to hear her sit and play in a room together only mm -hmm. with her husband, John Leventhal, because when they, you know, they've been together 23 years, and when they play together, it's magic. Mother and father, now that you're gone, it's not nearly long enough, still it seems to and then I yeah, want them amazing. to rethink, well, what, you know, how do you, what does it mean that artists keep going? You mentioned David Carr because David and I had a running argument about this. For David, rock music was all about youth and energy. And once that was gone, 
he didn't want to hear from the people anymore. I think I mentioned like a Paul Westerberg album that I like. He's like, no, no, no. He's in the replacements or he doesn't exist. And he didn't want to know anything. For him, it's wrapped up in that youth and memory. Now, I will say, when the replacements got back together, David was in the front row. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I always disagreed with that. I, I yeah. think artists have to be able to go on and do other things, and it's not always going to be wrapped up in that kind of youthful energy. I thought of this. I was reading um, this weekend a book about Daryl Gates, the uh, the former uh, chief of police for Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. who was head of chief of police in Los Angeles from, or a, a leading member of the police department there from the 50s through the early 90s, right? The, through Rodney King. But not just Rodney, from the mm. Watts riots of 65 through the LA riots of 90, whatever it was, one or two. And I realized sort of halfway through, the book is really about the deteriorating relationship between the African-American community of Los Angeles and the kind of white power structure. And it, it's a 30-year story of, of this kind of one blow after another, one... And halfway through, you realize, oh, this is where West Coast rap comes from. And if you don't know that story, Daryl Gates is the guy who invents SWAT teams. The militarization of modern police force starts in the LAPD in the 1970s. And all of a sudden, you know, f- police, you want to say, oh, that's where it comes from, right? It's not, it's not some song that was kind of like invented because it sounded cool. It arises out of something that was very particular. You grew up in Los Angeles. You were African-American growing up in Los Angeles in 1970, and you, you grew up on the You Love Story and of Watts on... What do you end up, and you saw the cops with their, you know, Gates was the guy who basically got these armed personnel carriers from the army and put a big battering ram on the back and would would essentially mow down houses that he thought were crack houses throughout South Central. You can't understand rap unless you know that history, and I didn't know that history until I read the book this weekend. Mm. So my point is like that role, that when Bruce was talking about the midwife role, that's a hugely, all of a sudden... NWA matters to me. Whereas before, I don't, you know, I didn't listen to them or know what was going on or think about it. I got something to say. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Headlam. Uh, Broken Record is their new podcast. Malcolm's done a million other things, including revisionist history. Thank you, my friends. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. That was really fun. Do you buy Malcolm Gladwell's distinction between critics and enthusiasts? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we come back, we share some of our favorite duets. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My duet partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we're sharing some of our all-time favorite duets. Throughout the history of popular music, there have been a lot of spectacular combinations across genres. Rock, pop, rap, soul, you name it. Two singers coming together, sometimes from different styles and completely different points of view, creating a special musical moment. You're right, Jim, and for our choices that we're highlighting at length, we really wanted to choose songs that were less obvious. I'm going to kick us off. Well, no, before you get into it, what, what, what was your number one criteria for what a great duet is? Well, I think, first of all, you have to have two voices on a song, obviously, <laughs> to right. have a duet, start right? there, yeah. Uh, there's got to be some kind of an exchange there. A conversation, not right. unlike this one. Indeed. And we have Simon and Garfunkel as maybe the classic vocal duo of the 60s, right? I mean, everybody thinks of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel as the ones who defined that particular sound for the 60s generation. The track I'm going to play, though, sort of goes a little bit beyond that, a step beyond. When you think about vocal duets and you think about Simon and Garfunkel, they were modeling themselves after, say, those classic 50s singers like the uh, Everly Brothers, Phil and Don. They established that sound, two voices melding, creating a third tone in there. It's almost like a supernatural event that happens when those two voices blend. Simon and Garfunkel had a similar chemistry earlier in their career, but on their last two albums, they really started to develop as studio craftsmen, really using the studio as an instrument and creating this whole other aura around the vocal duet. And I think the song that really nails it for me is The Only Living Boy in New York. It's from their last album, their fifth studio album that they did together, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Now, this song was written by Simon to Garfunkel. Garfunkel was already starting to drift away. He was uh, starting to develop a Hollywood movie career. As Simon was writing the songs for this album in New York, Garfunkel was off in Mexico doing a starring role in Catch-22. So Simon was feeling a little bit let down, a little bit lonely, a little bit like, you know, hey, you're out there having fun making movies, and I'm here writing our next record. What's going on? And he puts a little bit in that song. He felt, you know, I'm the loneliest boy in New York, a little self-pity there, right? But they turned it into this magical moment in the studio. Normally, you think of them singing side by side. Here, it's fascinating what they do. They sang together in an echo chamber and then layered those voices eight or nine times to create this haunting quality. So when you hear Garfunkel singing Here I Am, it sounds like he's in another country. And metaphorically, and literally at the time, he was. He was in Mexico. Mm. Simon's singing about this whole notion of these two friends and collaborators breaking apart. It's almost like a postmodern duet. He's here, but he's not. A beautiful, haunting song, one of the last things Simon and Garfunkel ever recorded together, The Only Living Boy in New York on Sound Opinions.
That's Simon and Garfunkel with The Only Living Boy in New York on Sound Opinions, one of my favorite duets. Well, that's a good one, Greg. Uh, if we're talking about some of the best duets in musical history, though, we can't leave out the dynamic pairing of Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Absolutely not. They began collaborating almost by accident. There was a version that Gay had recorded of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and there was a version that Terrell had recorded of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and the powers that be at Motown didn't really think either one was good enough. What happens if we take a little bit from from the chocolate side and a little bit from the peanut butter and we put them together? What do we get, right? That is what happened, and they would go on to record a string of fantastic hits. Your Precious Love, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, You're All I Need to Get By, If This World Were Mine. The tune I'm going to play is a little less known. It's the Onion Song. What a strange tune. The world is just a great big onion, and pain and fear are the spices that make you cry. There's also a strange story behind this. Some people say that it is not Tammy Terrell singing with Marvin Gaye. It's the co-songwriter Valerie Simpson. Tammy Terrell would die of a brain tumor. She and Gay were not together that often on the studio or on stage. She actually collapsed into Gay's arms on stage and died not long after. But there's a version of events that hold that that Simpson, one of the songwriters, sang, and it's her, not Tammy Terrell. Other people say, no, Simpson did a guide vocal, but even though she was in a wheelchair and sick and suffering, it is Tammy Terrell. I'll leave that to the historians to debate, okay? What I'm always interested in in a duet is when you have a male singer and a female singer, and they're each telling their story. You get a different version of events. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and then the third thing comes together, and it's better than everything. The Onion Song from 1969, I think, is when Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell did it best. Here it is on Sound Opinions. The world is just a Onion Song by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell on Sound Opinions. Greg, you got another great duet for us? Jim, I'm glad you brought up Marvin and Tammy because their song, You're All I Need to Get By, actually their version of Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson's song, You're All I Need to Get By, inspired my next pick. 
It actually has a kind of a checkered history. It began as a track called All I Need on Method Man's solo debut from 1994. Method Man, the first to release a solo record from that Wu-Tang Clan hip-hop posse that revolutionized hip-hop in the early 90s. So All I Need comes out as an album track in 94. In 95, it's remixed as a track called I'll Be There For You, You're All I Need To Get By, and it interpolates that classic Motown standard, You're All I Need To Get By. They added Mary J. Blige to the track as the vocalist, and that's what really makes it the partnership of Method Man's gruff street tales and Mary J. Blige's commentary on it. Now, the original song was a devotional song. This couple, you know, you're, you're all I need to get by. It was like devotion from man to woman, woman to man. In this particular track, there's a similar kind of sentiment, but it's a little bit more hard-edged. Blige is drifting in and out of the song almost like a ghost, almost like she's numb. She's talking about Method Man, this character, this narrator, and she almost feels like, you know, I'm about to be a widow. You're in this hard life. You're doing everything you can to support the family, but I fear you could be losing your own life because of it. So there's almost a mournful quality to it. Now, there's been several remixes of the song. The RZA version was the huge hit, but there was also a remix by Puff Daddy, of all people, that I really liked, and that's the one I'm going to play. And the reason I like it is that he takes a small sample of a couple of lines from a Notorious B.I.G. song, in which the Notorious B.I.G. says, lie together, cry together, I swear to God, I hope we die together. And that adds an added layer of hauntedness to this particular song. He's kind of echoing what Mary J. Blige is saying. So it's this duet with commentary on the side. Really complex, really beautifully done. Method Man and Mary J. Blige from 1995. I'll be there for you. You're all I need to get by on Sound Opinions. Surely you may for you anytime you need me. For real, girl, it's me in your world. Believe me. Nothing make a man feel better than a woman Queen with a crown that be down for whatever There are few things that's forever My lady, we can make war or make babies Back when I was nothing, you made a brother feel like he was something That's why I'm with you to this day, boo, no frontin' Even when the skies were gray You would rub me on my back and say, baby, it'll be okay Now that's real to a brother like me, baby Never ever get my away And keep it tight, alright? And I'm gonna walk these doors so we can live in a fat crib with thousands of kids Well, like, you don't need a ring to be my wife Just be there for me and I'ma make sure we Be living in the effing lap of luxury I'm realizing that you didn't have to f*** with me But you did, now I'm going all out, kid And I got mad love to give You my Method Man and Mary J. Blige from 1995. I'll be there for you. You're all I need to get by. A sentence that Greg Cott says to me very often. (laughs) I'm going to play Led Zeppelin's The Battle of Evermore. It's one of the great Zeppelin tracks. And the entire Zeppelin catalog, it's the only time when Robert Plant shares vocal duties with someone else. 
Sandy Denny. Robert Plant is playing the narrator in this creepy tale of supernatural folklore and mythology, and it's a tale of the darkest depths of Mordor. All respect to Peter Jackson, I think the single best piece of art ever inspired by Tolkien. Sandy Denny comes in as the town crier, and she adds an element that really elevates this song above and beyond what it already was. There were a lot of cool songs with, you know, Jimmy Page playing mandolin and Zeppelin in that Zeppelin 3 kind of folky acoustic mode. This is from Zeppelin 4, and every song on on that album brought Zeppelin to a new level. This is the song that precedes Stairway to Heaven, of course. I love it to pieces, and, and everybody loved Sandy Denny's voice, including the people in Zeppelin, who had the hugest egos, but they bowed down to what she had done with Fairport Convention. Tragically, a few years after this release, the album came out in 71. In uh, 77, Denny fell more and more into substance abuse, and she fell down the stairs in 78, hit her head very hard, lapsed into coma, and died a short time later. She was one of the great voices out of the UK in the 60s and 70s, and she is always worth remembering. Here is Led Zeppelin with Battle of Evermore on Sound Opinions. The Queen of Light took her bow, and then she turned to go. The Prince of Peace embraced the gloom, and walked the night alone. Doesn't the dark of night seem to the Lord? The dark Lord rides in force tonight, and time will tell us Led Zeppelin with Sandy Denny, the Battle of Evermore. When we return, we'll have more of our favorite duets. That's after a break from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I got 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are sharing some of our favorite duets. Two artists coming together to create something more magical than either of them might have done on their own. We've got a few songs left to share, but Greg, you are up next. My next choice, Jim, is from the 50s. It's a a song by a duo named Mickey and Sylvia. Love is Strange. I love this song, despite its association with Dirty Dancing. Many people (laughs) who are listening to this show may associate that song. They may have good associations. They may have bad associations. But I will say that Mickey and Sylvia are better actors than Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. No diss on Swayze and Grey, but this song is just a great example of both erotic playfulness and comedy. It has sort of a checkered history, this song, because Bo Diddley apparently wrote it and gave it to the couple because he was having a tiff at the time with Chess Records. Now, they added some stuff to it, clearly. There was an elaborate guitar part that Mickey played on this song, Mickey Baker. He was an accomplished R&B band leader at the time, And his guitar part was borrowed in part from a blues guitar player named Jody Williams. And then he took a little bit of that Bo Diddley Afro-Cuban beat and turned it into this beautifully layered guitar opus. On top of that, you had Sylvia, one Sylvia Robinson. Does that name ring a bell? The uh, future hip-hop mogul for Sugar Hill Records. That Sylvia Robinson was the duet partner on this record. There's some subtext to this song as well. Baker, the older man, was apparently in much enamored with the younger Sylvia and was constantly trying to court her. She was refusing. So the back and forth in this song is somewhat real. There's a conversation that actually breaks out in the middle of the song that's quite humorous. And when you talk about the duet as being a conversation, that's the absolute height of it. So brilliant musically, extremely funny, a beautiful piece of 50s pop. Love is Strange from Mickey and Sylvia on Sound Opinions. Oh, lover boy. And if he still doesn't answer. I simply say, 
What a duet. Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia. Nice choice. Greg, I know you're going to agree with this one as well. Not only is it one of the great duets of all time, you could say it's one of the great Christmas songs, albeit a very dark one. Fairy Tale of New York by Irish rockers The Pogues, released in 1987 and featuring the female vocals of the British pop singer Kirsty McCall. This happened by accident. Shane McGowan, leader of The Pogues, was writing this Irish-style folk ballad about a drunk who is thrown into jail in New York. He's an Irish immigrant, and he's either hallucinating or having this inner fight with himself, with his love, who's not there. They're both fairly miserable, lonely, drug-addicted, alcoholic, and it's Christmas. All right, what an uplifting song. It was supposed to be the female vocal part sung by the bassist for the Pogues, but she quit. A lot of people in and out of the Pogues through the years. And they were about to record what's going to happen. Steve Lillywhite was producing. He, at that time, was married to Kirsty McCall. Now, Kirsty McCall recorded five albums. She really became a little bit more popular or much better known in the States. She was always kind of popular in the U.K., after this song came out. I think her greatest album was Electric Landlady in 1991. She just happened to be in the studio. She did the vocal part. The Pogues liked it so much, they kept it. Tragically, she died in 2000 in a strange boating accident in Mexico. There's a melancholy to this whole song. Of course, you know, Shane McGowan is all about the melancholy, Mm -hmm. a sad life, a great talent. It all comes out in this song. Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues and Kirsty McCall on Sound Opinions. That was Kirsty McCall with the Pogues, Fairy Tale of New York. Kirsty McCall also uh, sang some on the Smiths records, Greg. She's a fine, fine vocalist. You've got a little bit of theme going here. There's sort of a little bit of a mini death trip going on with some of these vocalists in yeah, your this, songs. This was not intentional. Every one of my <laughs> female duet partners so far has died. <laughs> Sad, but leaving behind some great music, no doubt. My last choice for great duets, uh, Jim, is a track by the Minneapolis group, the Jayhawks. The track I'm going to play is from their 1995 album, Tomorrow the Green Grass, and it is an iconic one for Jayhawks fans. The key to this band has always been the interplay between the voices of Gary Loris and Mark Olson. Loris inevitably taking those high harmonies, Olson down below, the two voices just blending beautifully. 
You know, this group started playing what later became known as alternative country in the mid-'80s. They were using groups like the Leuven Brothers and the Stanley Brothers and the Everly Brothers and the early Birds with Graham Parsons as benchmarks for how they should sound. Highly unfashionable at the time, but they came up with a sound all their own, and it was really framed around those two voices interacting. The the key to those country harmonies that they were referencing was that high, lonesome sound. They loved that plaintive melancholy and yet sort of a soaring spiritual quality at the same time. And this song's a sterling example of it. Blue, what a hit it should have been. The voices blending perfectly. And then I love the bridge where there's these counterpoint vocal melodies that Loris and Olsen are singing over and under each other. Beautiful song, still gets me to this day, still can't figure out why it wasn't a hit. Blue by the Jayhawks on Sound Opinions. Where have all my friends gone? They've all disappeared. Turn around maybe one day. You're all that was there. Stood by on believing. Stood by on my own. Always thought I was someone. Turned out I was wrong. That is Blue from the Jayhawks on Sound Opinions, one of my favorite duets of all time. Jim, what's your last song? Well, Greg, throughout I've been saying that I really think a great duet is a conversation back and forth, not just two vocals coming together. And Candy by Iggy Pop is one of those conversations. Iggy said of writing this song, I was looking back on my relationship with my first girlfriend, Betsy, and I thought, let's be fair. Let's let her have her say. So he's reconsidering his first relationship. Then he brings the girl in. Who's going to play the girl? He turns to someone who I will argue is one of the best all-time go-to I-need-a-duet partner people in the history of rock (laughs) and roll, Kate Pearson of the B-52s. Kate Pearson has sung with R.E.M. She has sung with the Ramones. She's sung with Matthew Sweet. She's sung with David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. I mean, you talk about diversity. There's something about her voice. Iggy said it best. There is a naive little twang that sounds rural but gorgeous. She comes in and balances Iggy's reminiscences of this first relationship with hers. But both of them find that there's something sweet about this that they are going back to. It's one of Iggy's biggest hits and only major pop hits from 1990. You know, long and storied career and the inventor of punk rock, uh, but this was a big hit for him. Here it is, Candy on Sound Opinions.
Iggy Pop and Kate Pearson of the B-52s with Candy. That wraps up our list of favorite duets, but now we want to hear from you. What is your favorite duet and why? Call and leave us a message at our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it's a new year, and we're going to talk about new beginnings, songs that start strong from the very first note. You can start out strong by finding all our episodes at soundopinions.org and subscribing to the podcast wherever you get such things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Ina Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Sarah calling from Chicago. I'm just listening to the episode with the members of Rush, and I'm moved to call you to tell you how much I appreciate you helping me appreciate music and bands that I never would have cared for. I remember an episode years ago on heavy metal that just gave me such an appreciative understanding of that music that I was able to hear it differently. With Rush, I can't say that I enjoy the music anymore, but listening to Getty Lee and the bass player um, just made them so much more interesting than they ever were when I was a teenager listening to them. Thanks. Bye. the world in the palm of your hands you still might drop it and everybody want to reach inside your hi my name is brian and i'm calling from charlotte north carolina and i wanted to answer the question about the artists we're still mourning at the end of 2018 and the artist that i'm still mourning is mac miller mac miller saved my life on countless amounts of times with his words and his inspiring attitude and he was taken from us by an accidental overdose and you never know what kind of demons people go through. The fact that he was able to put out such amazing music with such quality words and content, and he battled his own demons. And baby, I've been through it. Enough for the both of us. So come over later, and we won't let no one close to us. You could be posted up. Yeah. Okay, well, you could have the world in the palm of your hands. You still might drop it. And everybody want to reach inside your pocket, so it goes. It's like in every conversation, we the topic. Uh, so we want to, you know, speak out in his honor. And uh, Mac Miller, we miss you, we love you, and we'll see you again someday. Will everybody gather round? I'm still standing, sit down. In love as one they say
This is Gordon from Tampa Bay, Florida. I'm calling to express my sorrow that we lost the incomparable Miss Nancy Wilson. She had the silkiest, most expressive voice and was able to use it in both jazz, pop, and rock. She will be sorely missed. Ahead lies mystery. Hello, Steve from Chicago, and in memoriam for 2018, the show should um, give a mention of Hardy Fox, a member of the Resonance, the only member of the Resonance who has revealed himself. He died on October 30th, and uh, the weirdo music community is uh, is saddened by his uh, his passing. He retired from the Resonance a few years ago uh, due to his ongoing health issues. And he finally succumbed to the great gig in the sky on October 30th. We'll miss him very much. Thanks for everything that you do in music. Talk to you later. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.